You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. Most of you know that um, about a week or so ago, uh, I returned from a uh, wonderful, extraordinary trip to Israel. Um, and uh, by design, I had um, determined that the next few Shabbat mornings, um, I would talk about Israel, uh, because I assumed that I would learn things when I planned that out. I assume I would learn things on, uh, on, my, on my trip, um, and uh, just uh, in general, want, took, wanted to take an opportunity to talk about Israel in a, in a serious and comprehensive way, um, when we don't always get the uh, um, opportunity to do so. Um, and I said it was okay, so I'm going to do that, that'll be my Saturday morning sermon series. Um, and then Friday nights, I'll just, you know, I'll talk about, like, whatever. I'll talk about Parsha, I'll talk about uh, different Jewish values, what's going on in our life, whatever. And, you know, it's like, every time you try to get out, it, like, sucks you back in. Because um, I've been trying to, um, to at least compartmentalize, to escape the mindset of still being in Israel. And I found it over the past couple of weeks um, extremely hard, not only because it was a fantastic experience and I miss it, and anybody who has ever been to Israel knows that feeling when you come back. Anybody who hasn't been to Israel, or even if you have, you can experience that feeling too <laughs> next year on a congregational <laughs> trip to Israel. Um, but also because world events keep pulling me back in. And over the past couple of weeks, um, I don't know about you, but um, I've been um, bombarded with um, discussions and conversations, um, and often a lot of heat, um, but not a lot of light around the issue of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, And then today, as I uh, sent out a, a letter to the congregation about um, the events that took place in, um, in Israel last night, and for those of you who didn't see the email or, um, or don't know, um, yesterday um, was the uh, gay pride parade in Jerusalem, um, and an ultra-Orthodox terrorist um, uh, who had been released from prison two weeks or less before that for, uh, uh, for the same crime uh, in 2005, um, uh, stabbed six participants um, at the parade. And then late last night, um, more ultra-Orthodox Jewish terrorists um, uh, torched a Palestinian home in the West Bank, um, killing an 18-month-old baby. So it's really hard to, um, to leave Israel when world events keep sort of pulling you back there. And I'm going to let what I wrote to the congregation today stand about um, those really tragic and horrible events that happened in Israel. And, and uh, as, as those of you who are following the news today know that none of that is the end of the story. It's never the end of the story in, in Israel. And there are uh, now violent clashes and skirmishes uh, happening. So um, one thing that, you know, as we uh, frame this Shabbat as a movement from the world of justice or judgment um, to a world of love and compassion... Um, I know that, uh, that I, and, and I'm sure that uh, we all um, hold in our hearts and in our prayers the uh, victims of those attacks, 
um, and, uh, and, and uh, especially um, uh, the family in Palestine uh, who lost their baby. Um, and uh, that we're praying for, the, for peace and for justice and uh, for the future of, uh, of, of Israel and of Palestine. But I don't want to talk about that now other than to offer the prayers, and we'll pray a little bit more later. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Iran nuclear deal, but I wanted to do it without really talking about the Iran nuclear deal. And the reason I want to talk about it without really talking about it is because I don't think I, um, and my guess is that 90% of the people who are speaking about it um, don't really have much qualification to be speaking about it. I don't, I'm not a nuclear physicist. I'm not uh, schooled in diplomacy or international relations. Um, it wasn't part of my training. I suspect it wasn't part of the training of many of the people in here. And uh, despite what they often say, it's not part of the training of many of the people who are the talking heads on the news or the people who are posting on your Facebook page. Um, and so I want to talk about it um, away from the details of the agreement, the wisdom of the agreement. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Should we oppose it? Should we support it? Um, and I have my own you know, political feelings about it. I'm sure that many of you do too. Um, and so it's not necessarily um, what I, I it, let me rephrase that, not, that's not necessarily, uh, but it's not uh, on my agenda to persuade you one way or another about how to view the deal, um, except for in the following capacity. So it's additionally hard to step away from Israel when your Torah portion uh, is fixated on it, is focused on it. And the Parsha this week opens with Moses uh, petitioning God uh, to let him enter into the land of Israel. If you recall from several uh, Torah portions ago, uh, Moses was denied entry into the land of Israel because of, uh, of uh, the uh, scene at what what's known as the waters of Meribah, um, where the people are thirsty and, and uh, asking for water. God tells Moses uh, to speak to a rock, and the rock will bring forth water. And uh, Moses instead uh, uh, yells at the people and hits the rock, and water comes out. But nevertheless, God uh, punishes Moses for, uh, for that transgression. And so in our Torah portion this week is sort of the culmination of that drama, where Moses is petitioning God, I've led the people this far, I've been a faithful servant in 99% in of uh, the, the ways, right, almost every other way, um, please let me enter into the land of Israel. God stands firm with God's decision not to let Moses into the land of Israel, but what God says is, you can't step foot in the land, but ascend the heights of Mount Pisgah, and you'll get to look at the land. You'll get to view the landscape from a distance and see the entire land from north to south. And that is supposed to suffice for Moses' desire to, um, to see, to experience, to feel what it's like to be in the land. There's a lot of ways to spin that story or to harvest fruit from that story. Uh, but as many of you know, um, I'm very taken by um, the, uh, the Hasidic tradition's approach to interpreting scripture. And the Hasidic tradition very often takes what looks like a historical drama in the Torah and makes it an internal, a psycho-spiritual drama um, inside each and every one of us. And so if we were to take that story of Moses um, wanting to enter into the land, but being told you can't enter into it, you can only ascend the mountain and look at it, what might that be teaching us, each of us individually, personally, about 
how to conduct our lives, how to uh, um, encounter the and walk in the world in which we live. So if you understand Moses' desire to enter into the land of Israel as a desire to, to grasp hold of the future, right? that's what he wants. He doesn't want to be stuck in the present. He doesn't want to be relegated to the past. He wants to grasp and seize hold of the future. And what God says to him is you can't grasp and seize hold of the future. The best you can do, all you can do, is stand on the mountaintop and look at the totality of the landscape as it is. And it strikes me that many of us are taken by that mosaic impulse. What we really want is to know the future. We really want to know exactly how things are going to turn out. And we operate very often based on our best guess of how things are going to turn out in the future. Sometimes some of us are paralyzed by our inability to determine how things are going to turn out in the future. Or run away screaming because of our anxiety about how things are going to turn out in the future. Many of us are very future-directed, future-oriented. Sometimes this is beneficial, but very often it keeps us stuck in place. It robs us of our ability to truly and fully encounter the world in which we live, the lives that we have, because we are chasing the ghosts or chasing the phantoms of what might be in the distance that we can never really grasp onto and we can never really hold. And so what God tells Moses is you can't do that. Nobody can know what the future specifically is going to hold. But what you can do is take a step back from the point of, from as an objective a point of view as you can possibly muster. Look at the totality of what exists and make your best next step knowing what is and not focused on what might be. The Jewish tradition has language for this. And one of the great values of the Jewish legal tradition um, uh, for rabbis and judges who are supposed to adjudicate cases is the phrase, Ein lo ladayan ela masha enav ro'ot. A judge only has what his or her eyes see. In other words, we can't know the inner thoughts of the person that we're judging. We can't know exactly the, the, the five or six steps down the road as if it were a game of chess of how um, our judgment is going to impact the, the person uh, that, we're, that we're judging. We can't necessarily know all of the potential ramifications of the decision that we're going to make. And so therefore the judge only has what his or her eyes see. That's supposed to be limiting but also liberating. Because instead of the anxiety and the pain of not being able to know with certainty what's going to be in the future and then determine based on what's going to happen in the future without that full knowledge, the judge has to rule based on the, all the evidence that's available before him. He can't discount evidence. He can't willfully ignore evidence. He can't be wrapped up in his own bias about the evidence that's in front of him or her. But nevertheless, that's all the judge is able and allowed to rule based on. Stack the evidence, lay it out, step on the mountain, look at the landscape, and then make your best decision. There is a tension in the Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic tradition, um, about this question of who is a wise person? Ezehu hacham. 
who's a wise person? And there's one answer offered that um, is a beautiful answer and true in a way, right? Ezehu Hacham, the Mishnah asks, Haro'et Hanolad, the person who can see what is not yet born or what is going to be coming. Ezehu Hacham, Haro'et Hanolad, who is wise, the person who can see what is not yet. But then comes another voice in the tradition and asks the same question, Ezehu Hacham, and disagrees, comes up with a different answer. Ezehu Hacham, who is wise, the answer is Halomed Mikol Adam, the person who learns from all people. In other words, we can't, maybe as an ideal definition of who is wise, somebody who sees the future, but in the real world, the reality, the best that we have is to amass all the evidence that we have, listen to all of the voices, listen to people from across the spectrum with different levels of knowledge and different approaches to the data. Step back from that landscape and look at it with as much objectivity as we can muster and then make the best next possible step using only what our eyes see. It strikes me that that wisdom of the tradition is something that is critically missing from the conversation about the deal with Iran. Because so much of the conversation is focused on what might happen in the future. You know, what might happen? if Iran's assets are unfrozen and $150 billion pours into the country, will they use it to build their economy or will they use it to fund terror? What will happen 15 years down the road after the deal expires? Will Iran be, as a nuclear threshold state, race to get a nuclear weapon or not? What will happen in the short term? to Israel as um, Iran, will Iran be emboldened by the, by the deal and by the international access or will it be moderated by the deal and by international access? These are all questions related to predictions about the future that none of us, even the smartest, the most in-depth experts about the deal can know with certainty and with full knowledge. And so, therefore, our tradition lays out the choice before us. We can't enter into the land. We can't know with certainty every contingency, every possibility about how things are going to turn out. The best we can do is listen to all of the voices, or as many voices as we possibly can, not only the ones with which we instinctively agree, but also those that we might, with, with, with whom we might not agree. The evidence that supports our preconceived notions and also the evidence that mitigates against it. And we see that playing out in this conversation as well. People commissioning surveys of the population and phrasing questions in such a way as to yield the result that they wanted to yield in the first place. And so it's incumbent on us to know that we can't possibly know with certainty everything that's going to come. And so the best thing that we have is the, the way to gain wisdom and to move forward is to step back on that mountain and to look at the totality of the landscape. We live in an uncertain world and in uncertain times. We may not know what's going to be tomorrow, five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now. But we do know, and our tradition affirms, that if we're willing 
to allow ourselves to learn from every person and we can make the best of our lives and the world in which we live right now. Shabbat Shalom.